Welcome to Side Talks, the official podcast of the Sidewalk Film Festival and upcoming Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. My name is Corey Kraft. I am one of the programmers for the Sidewalk Film Festival. And I'm Rachel Morgan, and I am the creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. This is the podcast where we talk all All things things cinema. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute. Round one. Fight. fight. You like that? Can you say it too? uh, Five-minute fight. Yeah, I like it. Um, So we're going to have a five-minute fight. We're going to put a timer on here in a second. What in the world are we fighting about right now, Corey? So, Rachel, um, we have had a number of conversations over the years that have led me to uh, intuit a certain ambivalence on your part toward one of the current pillars of mainstream Hollywood filmmaking, the superhero movie. Yes, you just want me to get pummeled, but I, I'm, I'm game. I'm game. I no, can do this. You know, um, I don't. It, I don't want it. I don't want you to get pummeled. And I'm not the sort <laughs> of person who is going to inherently argue that everything popular is also good. Because clearly, I don't believe that. We need to start this timer. Listen, get ready to hate Rachel. Timer starts now. Okay. Um, Avengers Endgame is currently the biggest movie on the planet. As of this recording, it is the second highest grossing movie of all time, having reached the $2 billion uh, watermark in like 14 days. It's or just something serving like theaters' asses to them. Yes. Uh, selling out screenings left and right. People can't get enough of it. It's three hours long, and it's the payoff of like 11 years worth of setup for this Marvel Cinematic Universe. I saw a concession worker crying. I, but what are we fighting about? Well, we're fighting about this. Well, I think it's good. I guess that's, I'll just I'll just put it that way <laughs> because I don't get the sense that you do. Oh, I, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's not good. I, I think it's, People like it. It's enjoyable. Okay, so I'm the only person in the world who's going to say this. Okay, say it. I went to the first 30 minutes of Endgame and walked out. You walked out? <laughs> Yes, I did. Not I. I knew I was going to. This uh-huh. wasn't like I was angry. I yeah. was angry because they were eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I just, you know, I was just like, oh, I want to see what this is. I want to experience this in the cinema. Uh-huh. I walked out after thirty minutes, and you know, if I had been really compelled, I would have stayed. So, I mean, I don't know that this is a huge argument, and I'm certainly not going to win it. But what I would tell you is like, this film doesn't feel any more special than any other superhero film, and superhero films as a whole don't really feel special. Maybe it's a case of oversaturation. And certainly there are some that are better than others, but Endgame, I don't, I don't like saying this because this, this is weaponized by all kinds of awful nerds. Endgame truly is, though, for people who have stuck with this series totally. of movies for 11 years. It's it. I mean, you have to have more than a working or operational knowledge of who the people on screen are. You have to know backstories, complicated interactions between these characters in the past for this thing to pay off. Yeah, it's got all these inside jokes. The guy next to me had clearly not left the house in like two years to see a film <laughs> up until this point or whenever the last one was. Um, he didn't shut up till he got his nachos. He was very emotionally invested. Um, that scene at the beginning, spoiler alert, there's some people that disappear at the very beginning. Sure. And I guess everybody in the world's seen this film anyway, so what does it matter? And he literally leans forward and he goes, oh, no. Oh, no, when the people disappear. I'm, I'm one like, of those guys. Oh, my god! I'm one of those guys. When, whenever Captain America said something about, like, oh, uh, you know, talking about, he's talking about loss and how you've just got to get yeah. over it. And he leans forward and he goes, but you never did. 
<laughs> and I was actually going to stay just for this dude's commentary, except they brought him nachos and he shut up because he was just stuffing them in his well, face. This film is just fine. It is as enjoyable as anything else. I was entertained. Um, these films aren't good. Why? Why? They're just kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I actually don't think you need to ha- to have all this inside knowledge. I, I kind of yeah. could, I could tell the jokes. Uh, da, da. It just, I just think they're sort of, I mean, they're stupid. They're stupid. I'm like watching it and I'm like, boy, this is really stupid. I kept thinking that. Like, uh, I mean, I'm now granted, I'm enjoying myself. I'm having a decent time. I really like the guy's commentary. So here's my ca- counter argument. Um, maybe it's just the fact that I grew up a giant nerd and I'm still a giant nerd, but the fact that something this nerdy has captured the popular imagination in the way it, d- it has on the big screen, while on the small screen, we have a show that's literally about dragons and magic that has captured the popular imagination of, of audiences around the world. Like this is me as a child, you know, losing my mind. Like really like all of this stuff that, that I grew up enjoying now that I'm an adult has actually proven to be some of the most popular entertainment there is. And if you compare this to, you know, big budget action filmmaking of the 80s and 90s. I think this is made with a lot more care and attention and craft eh. and style and, and money. Better, That's the bigger thing. Better actors. Uh, every actor every in the actor. world. Every actor yeah. in the world is so, in this film. Why? Because they can They be. know a good thing when they see it. And, and that, they, it's and called money a paycheck. Talks. Yeah, money talks. I mean, here's my thesis on this, okay? I don't think these films are any better. They're certainly more. more funded i think that what you're getting at here is that there were a whole lot more nerds on this planet than we thought yeah probably um, and that's what's going on and we we have taken over the world um and for better or worse and you're just making just making poor concession workers at theaters cry no, into I, popcorn. I, I don't like that you know that's where i'll agree you know we we need to if we're going <laughs> to swarm these theaters look out for our uh, concession workers and the the poor uh, the poor bastards who have to clean up these these uh, auditoriums every night after the shows. Oh, well, you know who won this. Oh, Corey, you won. And I'm probably going to get, like, I don't know, nerd pummeled on my way to the car tonight. No, maybe, but probably not. Yeah, that was a pretty reasonable discussion on both sides. Sam? I think Rachel gets minus a thousand points for walking out of the theater after 30 minutes of a three-hour movie. But also, like, plus just a hundred or so, because that's doing something probably no one else literally will ever do, like, at all, ever. So it's kind of impressive when you think about it, but also, like, who does that? And I think we need Nacho Guy at every movie screening, or a version of a Nacho Guy, um, get you out of your comfort zone in the cinema space. Rachel's just wrong on this one. (laughs) I mean, it is the, it's sort of the rare action blockbuster like three-hour superhero movie that's just that isn't just like dudes in spandex punching random villains or aliens from space attacking new york it actually sort of has a heart to it and like definitely rewards course at the 11 years the 22 movies and the people that actually took all that time to watch it and get to know everything and it entirely rewards that and also rewards multiple viewings and like no wonder it is the second highest grossing movie at the box office Guess what it's time for, Corey? Is it time for What's This Shit? What's This Shit? That's exactly right. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm at the gym. I'm headed towards the Cardio Cinema 
and right. I am on the treadmill. And guess who's on the screen? You could probably guess this. Uh, Vin Diesel. Thomas Cruise. Oh. So he's there. There's a the, and the whole deal here is right. I've got. To, I'm going to tell you a little bit. And okay. You're going to try to guess it, right? Yes. So you've already got a clue, okay, and that Tom clue Cruise. comes in the form of Tom Cruise. He is. There's a prison break. Okay. He's uh, looking very chiseled, very fit. Sure. Swinging around, very smart, talking to a camera, very witty. Um, I already know what this is. I've, I kind of figured. I, so I'll just take a moment here to interject that. Guess what? I like. I like Tom Cruise. Yeah, he's great. Really? What's, I thought you would be shocked. No. I mean, we should not like not him. Like? We what's should not, not like? like him. We should He's, not like him. He is a great movie star. So, I mean, I agree. I'm not going to argue with you about Thomas Cruise. Um, perhaps it's because I'm a short person. He's a short person. Sure. That's maybe why I like him. He's a wee little man. Yes. All things seem to suggest, though, that he's an asshole. I mean, so. Whatever. I'm yeah. never going to meet him. His movies are enjoyable. Yeah. Well, anyway. Especially this one. Okay, so back to the film. I'm so sorry for getting really distracted by the man, the legend, Tom Cruise. Um, yeah, there's a prison break. Okay, and I, spo- you know, like not not spoiler alert, but like unfair moment here, right? Is that uh, I know what it is because the music comes on, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I hear the music. I never did see the title sequence because you know at some point I have to like look down and see what you know some stuff on the treadmill or whatever. So I don't see the title sequence, but I do hear the music. So I'm like, damn, you know, I can't really bring this as a major secret to Corey. But I don't have any idea in the in the series what this is. So what film is this? This is the best one. It's uh, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. <laughs> you just made that title. I up. didn't. You made um, it up. This movie, uh, to use the parlance of our times, slaps. I love it so much. Oh, man. It is great. Uh, this is uh, the fourth Mission Impossible movie, directed by Brad Bird from 2011. This is the one that introduces Jeremy Renner to the franchise. This is the one where Ethan Hunt climbs the Burj Khalifa. Uh, and, you know, they actually put <laughs> Thomas Cruise on the side of this giant ass skyscraper. And it's amazing. And I saw it in IMAX in 2011. And it was the coolest shit I've ever seen. Oh, uh, I, no, I genuinely love this franchise, especially the last three. This one's the best one. So. Uh, if you haven't seen it, and it sounds like you haven't, no, go back and watch I, it because it rules. It's no. great. It's uh, really great. I'll catch maybe another five minutes of it when it plays again at the oh Cardio Cinema, but I have no need for this. As a matter of fact, my feeling about this film was the same as my feeling for the way the person on the treadmill next to me smelled. Ugh. Bad. One other thing, though, in addition to our discussion of Thomas Cruise, I want to give a little credit to Ian Cunningham. Mm-hmm. who is a friend and a supporter and a podcaster in his own right. He noted that the film that we talked about many, many moons ago that had Morgan Freeman and he was a, you know, I'm sorry for this, but Panty Dropper um, is a film called Just Getting Started. Yeah, I never saw that. Uh, I'm genuinely surprised that Ian did, but. I don't think he'd actually seen it. I think he just said, this is what that film is that you guys are talking about. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving him credit where credit's due. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll. Call him out. Ian, did you really watch this movie? Question mark. Get ready for the MTV Lost Weekend with Van Halen. Do you have the guts to enter this contest? Destination unknown. You'll have no idea where you are. You'll have no idea where you're going. And probably no memory of it after you go. But it'll be the whole weekend. We shouldn't call it a contest because we don't know what's going to happen to the winner. 
We are very fortunate that Bradford Thompson is here with us, has a film that you co-directed, am I correct? That's right, yeah. A short film called Lost Weekend. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about this? Uh, Yeah, Lost Weekend is uh, the story of two guys in small town Pennsylvania who won a contest in 1984 on MTV uh, to party with Van Halen for 48 hours. That was the basis of the contest. If you win, uh, and a million people entered, supposedly, and if, if you win, you go and party in Detroit with Van Halen for 48 hours. And so I have to ask you, well, first of all, should we give who else should we give credit to here? Like, I know there's a list of people who you probably want to sort of, that aren't here with us today, but you kind of want to give a nod to. Well, yeah, Brett Wickham is my co-director. You know, we've made yeah. all of our feature docs together, um, and we just kind of, you know, share these roles and just work with these together as a team, and Allie Clark, uh, my, who's my wife, um, who also has a long history with Sidewalk. Uh, she was an ex- executive producer on the piece, and then, you know, I got to give some credit to Kyle McKinnon, who's you know connected with Sidewalk, also for sort of the development of the idea, you know, which was kind of born out of um, late nights watching uh, MTV videos, Night Flight, um, all kinds of getting our hands on all the MTV Video Music Awards we could from back in the day, and then just kind of having this weird random idea. Yeah, so, and you've done features in the past, right? I mean, I know you've done shorts too, but you did Life and Waves. Mm-hmm. Um, you did the Glow film, that not the series, right? Even though I would argue that I think the series wouldn't happen if it wasn't for your film. Appreciate that. Um, yeah. Uh, but so this was originally, were you thinking feature with this? Or did you know, like, going into it, this is going to be a short? I think we thought it was a short from the get-go. I mean, like I said, it was it was sort of born out of a wild idea. Um, it was just like, oh, you should make a doc, or you should make a short film about that guy, or you should make a doc about that guy. And it was like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then I read a chapter in a book called I Want My MTV. It's a very short chapter, but it, it talked a little bit about The Lost Weekend, and it kind of talked about Kurt's story and what actually happens on The Lost Weekend. And that's when it was like, oh, this is actually... Uh, a film like there's a film here but we never really saw it as a feature just always as a as kind of a snapshot uh, of a moment in time so we looked at it as a short from the beginning yeah and i am super old so i remember this competition i don't i didn't sign i don't think i sent a postcard for it but i remember thinking man this would just be mind-blowing to i mean i wasn't old enough to have won because i guess you had to be did you have to be a certain age? Do you? I think you had to be 18. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't yeah. have been old enough to win anyway, but I certainly wouldn't have probably stopped me from sending a postcard. But I don't remember doing that. But I do remember thinking, what an awesome competition. Um, and so do you have any – you were probably too young, right, to – yeah, I would have been five. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like just sort of the, the MTV, the feeling of MTV is like – it's still there in my memory, even though I, I wasn't conscious enough probably to remember this specific bumper and this specific contest. But just the way MTV felt in that time period uh, is just in me from, from yeah. watching it. You know, I was lucky enough to have cable. My grandmother had cable at a very young age. And just being exposed to MTV and Nickelodeon, it just kind of put all this stuff in my head, whether I remember it specifically or not. Yeah. So. And so this dude sends a postcard in, wins a freaking, I think to this day, major dream, right? (laughs) To spend the weekend with Van Halen at the height of Van Halen. What's that phone call like when you find this guy? Uh, You know, first it was, it was actually, I think I, I think I tried to seek him out on Facebook and I think I found him, but um, he had a very, he had an account that was, you know, not very active and he had been interviewed you know, for that book. And he'd been interviewed for another uh, blog years ago. But I reached out to him on Facebook, couldn't get to him really. 
and then got to his friend Tom, who's also in the film, Tom Winnick, mm-hmm. um, and he was a little bit, you know, skeptical of, of what we were wanting to do and just kind of like, you know, really, you want to, you know, do a film about this, you know, weekend? But then he came around and he reached out to Kurt and then they both got on board pretty fast. I mean, you know, they 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 hadn't thought about it seriously, I think, in a little while, but once they started to go there, like, they were just, they were all about it. Yeah, I mean, this has to be like, maybe I'm wrong about this, like either the best or the worst weekend of this guy's life. I think I think he looks at it as one of the best. I can't yeah. say. I mean, and I, I I get the feeling that he had that experience uh, from the get go. Even though you know there are some things that happen in the film, I won't spoil. But um, sure, you know, it, it's it wasn't a perfect weekend, but it was certainly one that I think he walks away from feeling pretty good about. And and he has he just has a good attitude. You know, he's just a really great dude, and so is his friend Tom. Um, and they're just kind of normal dudes. You know, they still live not that far from each other. They're still near the Phoenixville area in Pen- in, uh, in in Pennsylvania. And so it's it's just it was cool that we were able to to connect with two such grounded people who were willing to do this with us. Yeah, twenty bucks that somebody somewhere sees this and writes the feature version of what happened. <laughs> that would be <laughs> narrative feature. That would be hilarious. Yeah. So, is there anything that's not in the documentary that you just couldn't fit in that you could tell us that you know about this weekend? Are you that you're sort of allowed to say it's okay if there's not? Just curious. Not really, actually. I mean, we, we kind of cover it, I think. And, we, you know, we got a fair amount of archive footage, so we get a good visual representation of it. And, um, you know, Kurt was still a little coy about how some things went down, you know, because he was a different person and he was 19, obviously, and he is now. Sure. Um, but for the most part, I think he was pretty he was pretty open with us, and they, they kind of share. You know, we really didn't get much into Tom's second night, you know, because it was a two-night thing, and really the, the film just covers kind of the first night when, when most of the stuff went down, so... There may be stuff that went on that we, you know, aren't even fully aware of. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I would I mean, imagine so. Yeah, because they didn't, I mean, the, the Van Halen guys, this was not a sterile experience. You know, this was not uh, the way that um, meet and greets look today. Like where right. you go into a room, you sit, you wait for the artist to come in. They come in, maybe they sign something, they shake your hand, take a photo, and they leave. This was like the guys watched the concert, they went out on stage, and then when the concert was over, they partied backstage with the band at a, at a level beyond where even the cameras were allowed to go, you know? Right. So we have we have footage of, of them with the band backstage, but at some point it's like you actually see Eddie like do one of these, you know, like cut the cameras <laughs> off with his hand across his neck and, and the cameras do cut off and then they go and that's when they really, you know, party. Yeah, and that's where we can just imagine what probably went down. Yeah. So yeah. you premiere at Tribeca. Mm-hmm. This is, is this a dream? It's, I mean, yeah, Tribeca has always been on the list. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's just one of those festivals that you, you know, you know, you want to play. And, you know, when we got the call, it was just, it was like, wow. You know, I just, I felt, we just didn't know, you know, I mean, it's a fun film. It's, it's a film with a good energy. And, and I think it's got, uh, you know, it's got a nostalgia factor and it, it, it's, uh, you know, we're really happy with it, but I just, I didn't know what kind of film it would be for festivals, you know, cause it's, sure. it's not, you know, it's, it's not like a heavyweight subject you know um, not that that's not that that is necessarily what you need but you know what I mean no I do and there's lots of shorts in the world I mean that's the thing congratulations because I mean I can tell you there are a ton of shorts out there and you know short docs and short narratives but there's only so much space for them so it really uh, it speaks a lot to say the film was programmed at, at you know one of the greatest film festivals in the world so yeah, congratulations really, on that thank you I appreciate that it was it, it was yeah it was definitely one we we've always wanted to play and we're so happy we were able to 
And you were there. And so what, you know, the real reason why I wanted to interview you, mm-hmm. right, is that so there was a Say Anything cast reunion at Tribeca that you went to. And yeah. you and I have something in common. And we share that commonality with Anthony Kiedis, I think, uh-huh. which is that we have a real devotion and love for Ioni Sky. Yeah, I'm, I I think I'm I'm a little bit. I had an obsession at one point in time, and it's it's been reignited. I think by this. Oh man, by the screening. Yeah, so yeah. can you just? I'm taking you to dinner at some point okay. to to get every little detail from this, since I couldn't be there. But can you just tell me one like one thing about this reunion? Like what sticks out to you, or seeing Ioni Sky, or whatever, whatever. Well, I'll get to Ioni, but you know, I think <laughs> I think that uh, Cusack was supposed to be present, but he ultimately didn't. Uh, Lame. But. They Skyped him in. Okay. And so they put, I mean, his, I can show you a photo, but they, his head is like on this, the movie screen behind the four <laughs> of them, the, the other. Oh my God. And, uh, and he looks, I mean, it looks like the Wizard of Oz. Like he's just a floating That's kind of better. I know it was really cool actually. Um, but you know, it, it, I'll just say that it only took Ioni Sky like, um, you know, like five minutes before she mentioned like Moon Zappa. So, you know, like, right. I, like you get a quick sense of her, like coming up and, and who she was as a young person um, very quickly. She, you know, she viewed the whole experience as, as a very positive one. And, you know, honestly, watching the film again uh, in the theater, it's just, it's really great. I mean, it was, it was, it was something I was really excited about and, you know, um, glad I went. She looks so dang good still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She does. Yeah. 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 Well, so we'll, we could just sit here and look at pictures of Annie Sky for the next 20 minutes. Yes, we're going to go silent for a minute. Yeah, just yeah. Hold on. Um, so now, okay, yeah, so we've done that. Um, so uh, last thing I will sort of end with my, I, I don't know if you ended up hooking up with my friend Alex or not, but she really wants me to pitch this idea to you mm-hmm. about a short doc, which is that there was this sort of, and maybe she mentioned this to you, but there was um, on MTV a f- like 48 hour competition for Madonna's True Blue video. Do you remember this at all? Uh, no, you know, but we have been researching other contests and there's a lot of them. I mean, there's a ton, but I don't, I don't necessarily know that one offhand. So it was just an open invitation to the world to make a music video for True Blue, the mm-hmm. single, the next Madonna single at yeah. that time, right? And so, I mean, literally, uh, if you made a video and sent it to MTV, they played it over the course of this, basically, I think it started Friday night and ended like a Monday morning. And they did. They played every single thing that came in that met their, I guess, content requirements. So I wow. don't know if they got any X-rated stuff or not. But, And I mean, a lot of it was just people in their bedrooms with, you know, holding up the Madonna album and singing um, with the song in the background. I mean, it's real. Because I mean, it was the era when everybody had, you know, a VHS camcorder. And so there was a ton of crap sent in. And MTV just screened all of the crap. And then one won, of course, and it became Madonna's video, right? So, And she supposedly chose it, but I think we... I'll know Madonna wasn't watching the crap that I was watching all weekend, but I did right. literally, I sat down and was just like, I'm watching this all weekend long and screened my face off watching these really horrible videos. I can't even believe I did it. Um, but yeah, that was my weekend. So um, anyway, that's her, that's, I'm sort of via me. That's my mm-hmm. friend Alex's pitch to you to make a short doc about that. Well, the, my question would be, who's got the tapes? Exactly. Where, where are the videos? Alan if, Hunter. If the videos exist, then then definitely it's something <laughs> that could be done. You know, um, that's really cool. And you know, while while I'm on here, I, I just want to like I want to go ahead and say how much that, that Brett and I love Sidewalk and like how grateful we are to Sidewalk. You know, we premiered our first film at Sidewalk. I mean, the first time we saw our film play in a theater was at Sidewalk with the Rocket Fire Explosion at the Carver Theater, and it's like I mean, it it, it stands as like 
probably one of our greatest memories in working, you know, in film for the last however many years, 12 years or whatever we've been doing it. So well, thank you for saying that. And as long as we're having a love fest, I'll tell you that you also and that's what that same film brought me. And I think Kyle would admit would say this too. one of the best nights of our life because we actually got to go and and go to that trailer where the rock of fire explosion from Showbiz Pizza was the animatronics were there and we got to spend an evening watching them. I heard Did Um, you guys sleep in there. We didn't sleep there. Oh, okay. Actually, Kyle might have. I left. I know but Allie Kyle... was there too, right? Yeah, she yeah, was. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, but I was there and we he made us pizza and we drank Mountain Dew out of 20 oh ounce gosh. bottles and um, watched uh, the Rock of Fire Explosion do like Love and the Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's... it was, I'm serious, it was one of the best nights of my life. So you brought that to me. So um, thank well, you. And you're welcome. Yeah, I'm <laughs> glad to have done that. So. And thanks for being on the podcast. Of we course. appreciate it. Thank you. So now it's time for Kyle's Corner. Kyle McKinnon is a features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to. Old dog. When I was about 14 years old, I uh, I went out to a birthday party where uh, f- we went to Johnny Ray's Barbecue. And we stayed there a little too long, so we're running late to go see the movie Stargate. And um, this was at the uh, in Hoover at the Cobb Six Theater, and we came in after the movie started, and the only seats it was like packed house. It was a Friday night, and the only seats that we could all fit in were in the very back row. So we kind of slipped into the back row, and a nice, a, a very generous lady in front of us decided that she was going to tell us everything that we missed in Stargate up to this point, and. Um, and I don't know, none of us were really asking for her input, but she just decided to keep turning her head back. She kind of go back and forth between looking at the screen, then, you know, looking back at us and telling us what happened. And so, you know, she's, while this is happening, James Spader's character, um, he's on screen and he picks up a candy bar and eats it and she becomes really distracted by it. And so this is kind of how it goes. It's like, so she's telling us about the, the, about what we're missing she's like and then such and such came into the room and such and such they they noticed a portal in egypt and blah 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 and that's it Ooh, chocolate and um she lost her train of thought and stopped talking to us and we just burst out laughing i'm kyle mckinnon and that's one of my favorite movie going experiences I have a confession, and this is an embarrassing movie confession. There was a brief window of time when I would clap at a movie theater. And I'm not talking about the, like, acceptable, like, thing at a film festival because, you know, you got to clap for the filmmaker there or, like, the, you know, or I guess to give recognition to the programmers or something like that. For Not that anyone's ever done it before. But um, I, there was a brief window of time that, like, when I saw... Like a, when I, I'd get really excited about a horror movie that was playing, and I remember specifically seeing um, Cat, uh, Cabin Fever, the Eli Roth's first movie, and also House of a Thousand Corpses. And I had just come out of college where I was programming our Cinema Guild, where I like I think that's where I got it from, where it's just kind of like you know people would be really enthusiastic, clapping for these movies we would not normally get to see. But I was really pumped up for these two movies. I mean, especially. I don't think I would have just clap for them had they sucked, but like 
of course I wouldn't have, but I was really rooting for horror movies at that time around like 2004, 2005 to the point that I'd be like checking their box office returns. Like the, and this is the only time I've ever done this by the way. Um, but I just, I just, just really was believing in horror still. I gave up on it, but that was like the last time I did. And so I loved House of a Thousand Corpses and Cabin Fever, especially House of a Thousand Corpses, so much that when it was over, um, yeah, I totally burst into applause and, and made the room clap. It, it, it paid off. And uh, I still, even though, you know, I was, it was genuine enthusiasm and all, I do cringe a little bit. Um, my name's Kyle McKinnon. This is Embarrassing Movie Confessions. Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. And now, fast film terms. Let me tell you about Dogma 95. Are you familiar with um, this group of Scandinavian filmmakers who in the mid-90s got together and established uh, a rather nebulous set of rules that they then promptly broke in almost every film they made subsequently? I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's the best answer. <laughs> uh, the the preeminent filmmakers in this this movement, Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg, um, they sort of headed this collective of filmmakers who established a, a lot of rules about uh, a sort of semi-verite style of narrative filmmaking. And I don't know all of the rules by heart, but there, there were rules about the type of camera to use, the type of shots to use, non-diegetic versus diegetic music, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, lo- most of these films were shot handheld and grainy, commercial, uh, commercially available uh, video. Most notably among these films is Von Trier's The Idiots, and I think um, Vinterberg's The Celebration. Uh, though, again, all of these guys adopted uh, some of these rules going forward, but broke many of the others. For instance, Von Trier made a musical in 2000 called Dancer in the Dark, uh, which used some of the dogma rules, but not all of them, because you know they burst into song spontaneously. That's not exactly what you'd call realistic. Man, that's not a fast film term. That's a slow film term. We slowed it down for this fast film term. Um, okay, and I've got a fast film term that I will try to do fast. Okay. So there's this thing called the cool shop effect. And I'm going to fast it up, like okay, I said. Fast okay, fast it up because so, I wouldn't be able to do this. I teach I, this. And... I teach this, and that's why I'm going to fast it okay. up. Uh, people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> We're all dumb. And so what it basically means is that this is a study that, guess what, Kulshov does, right? So we'll just leave it at that. And uh, basically you've got an actor, yes, and you, you just shoot this actor on film, uh, just looking at the camera, doing absolutely nothing but looking at the camera. And then you take that exact footage and you cut it against a bowl of soup and then you cut it against a uh, coffin and you cut it against a pretty lady. And when you play it back for an audience of stupid human beings like we all are, they go, oh my gosh, when he's looking at that bowl of soup, he's just the best actor. He's so hungry in that scene. And then you, you know, when you see it with the same exact shot, play it against the woman. Oh, he's lustful. Look at him wanting to get with that lady. And you play it against the coffin. Oh, he's so sad. And we're just dumb. And we, you know, that's what allows for movies to work. Yeah, we impose our own meaning on the <laughs> juxtaposition of those images. It's one of the foundations of film editing. Good Lord. <gasps> what are you watching? All right, Rachel. Uh, this week, I have been watching a couple of movies from uh, a very... Well, well-regarded indie film distributor at the moment, A24, friends of ours, of course. We've screened a lot of their films at the festival. 
there are two recent releases of theirs that I want to highlight. Uh, I believe you've seen one of them, too, so we might have a discussion about that. The first is available on VOD, though, at the moment. It is a movie called Under the Silver Lake. Have not seen it. Um, a movie I enjoyed quite a bit, though it has proven divisive uh, critically and with audiences to a degree that A24 kind of, uh, maybe dumping it is the wrong word, but they kind of did in very, very limited theatrical release, despite the fact that it is uh, the follow-up film from the director of It Follows, David Robert Mitchell, and stars Andrew Garfield. Uh, It is a a sort of slacker neo-noir set in Los Angeles. Lord knows we've had plenty of those. I like Los Angeles. I don't like Andrew Garfield's face. Uh, Well, that might be a problem, although I will say this is a tricky movie. It It is a broad comedy about uh, this kind of slacker loser guy who is prone to surprising acts of violence, sort of investigating a mystery that may or may not exist based on clues that that may or may not be products of his imagination. Uh, And ultimately, it is kind of a criticism of entitled white dudes who... The only way they can figure they, they, their lives are not going well is because of an international conspiracy that only they can seem to decode. <laughs> I like um, it. I, like I, I thought that was a blast. Once you kind of figure out that the mystery, even though it takes you to some pretty interesting places and some pretty interesting episodes, is more or less incomprehensible. It is wildly enjoyable. But obviously that's going to be the hump that some people don't get over. The fact that, no, it doesn't make any logical sense at all, barely hangs together as a plot. For me, though, it reminded me of a movie from last year that both you and I liked a lot called Gemini. Love that movie. Um, it's not as moody. Gemini is far more of a mood piece. It's it's far more atmospheric, I think, than Under the Silver Lake. But in both of these films, the plot is secondary. The plot is really not what's important. Um Good double feature? They might be. Um, you know, Gemini is is different but than Under the Silver Lake, but they're both very, very enjoyable um, sort of neo-noirs set in sunny locales, which I'm, I'm a sucker for. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, I'll watch it. What's this other one? Uh, the other one's High Life. Oh, Claire yes. Claire Denis' High Life. Have um, seen it. Have seen it. You know what the best thing about this film is? Uh-oh. What? The title... I just like the title. It's a good title, but that that leads me to think you didn't think too highly of the movie. Itself. No, it's well, not good. Mm, it's it's a mess. I disagree. They put a bunch of footage in a blender. Wow. And I, then just swirled it together. But th- you know, this reminds me of our argument about uh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. Uh, heady <laughs> existential science fiction. I'm a sucker for it. I'm I'm an easy mark, and this is. Um, this is Tree of Life with Robert Pattinson? Uh, well, not not exactly. This is Tree of Life if the Tree of Life were on a 70s style spaceship and filled with semen. And Robert Pattinson. And Robert Pattinson. Anywhere uh, Robert Pattinson is, I feel like there's a lot of semen. It just it follows naturally. Um, this is a movie about uh, death row inmates who have been put in a spacecraft and fired toward a black hole. And on the way there, they're being experimented on for science. These kind of creepy and gross reproductive experiments conducted by Juliette Binoche, who is basically playing a witch. And has really long hair. Really long hair. 
Um, it is slow moving. It is almost plotless, I think, in the conventional sense. But it, it, it's really it's an examination. more plot than Tree of Life. More plot than the Tree of Life. Uh, unlike the Tree of Life, this is really more of an examination of, of you know, the human body and its various functions and how the human body, when you break it down, is just a bunch of fluids and just a bunch of, like, weird uh, mechanisms. And yet through this, uh, the human body is capable of grace and love and understanding even in the most um, dire of circumstances where this, you know, they're rocketing toward a black hole. Death is inevitable. Uh, but really, you know, aren't we all on eh. this ship uh, being eh. fired toward certain oblivion? Um, eh. So I felt like I was just, you know, hit in the face with a bunch of bodily fluids. Yeah. Again. I, um, I get it. After the fourth close up of semen, I, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Again, a no more polarizing, for me. polarizing movie, I think. But one that that I responded to, I think I prefer, you know, just because it's more my type of thing under the Silver Lake. But but um, I would recommend both of these movies pretty, pretty heartily. Um, and only A24 is willing to even give these bonkers sort of auteurist visions, you know, semi-wide releases at the moment. So Gemini's like, neon. I'll keep that in mind. Well, but. Gemini is. Yeah. But but. Uh, Under the Silver Lake and High Life, both A24, both worth uh, your time, even if they may prove, um, well, divisive. I'll put it that way. Okay. Well, what I'm watching is a huge gear shift. Okay. Okay. So uh, I, let me just throw it out there. I watched The Bodyguard. Okay. Um, I had not seen The Bodyguard. I've never seen it either. I felt like I had, oh, so you're not going to be, let me. I mean, look, but I was alive. You know, in the early 1990s. So. Yeah, I gotcha. So, you know. Well, yeah. I thought I had seen it because I saw the Whitney Houston music video. Yeah. And so I had made all kinds of assumptions, and I was not pleasantly surprised by this <laughs> film. So I'm just going to give a couple of little, like, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen The Bodyguard yet, you're probably not going to see it. No. So I feel like I'm good. So there is a there is zero chemistry between uh, old boy, what's his name, Kevin Costner mm-hmm. and Whitney Houston. Zero chemistry. I mean, it's bizarre. And I was like, did they hate each other? I did a little quick web search afterwards. No, they, they liked each other. Actually, Kevin Costner penned her to be to play this role. But yeah. um, I don't know what was going on there. But I mean, it's like it's like two bricks placed in front of one another. There is a crazy ass sex scene in this film where Whitney Houston like slinks up to a samurai sword that's on the wall of this really sad basement that Kevin Costner's living in, pulls the samurai sword off the wall and is like doing an erotic in quotes dance with this gets up on his neck with the sword and he removes her scarf throws her scarf into the air and in slow motion it comes down and is cut clean cut across the samurai (laughs) sword so if you haven't seen this film now i know you're going to for that one scene yeah and then the other big spoiler is this thing wraps up with this shot of Kevin Costner. He doesn't freaking die. I kept waiting for him to die because the music video led me to believe there was some snow and he's going to die. Well, he doesn't die. Where we end up with this thing is that bodyguards work is really hard. You need to respect the bodyguard. What? Like as a whole, <laughs> like the profession as a whole, like they're out there doing their job. That's, I mean, that's the moral of the story. It's, it's as if they watch backdraft and they were like, damn, we need one of these for bodyguards. Yeah. So, yeah, um, wow. I don't recommend this. And I kind of like you got to see that sex scene. 
Okay. It's something else. I mean, it's it's one of these movies that I've always felt like I've seen too. Um, I saw last year's documentary on Whitney Houston by Kevin McDonald, and I think Kevin Costner is interviewed in that, and it, it talks about how. Yeah, we screened it. Well, we screened one of them. I think oh, we that's screened the other one. Okay, Nick I got Broomfield. You. Broomfield, that's yeah. right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it, you know, um, obviously that was a big part of her career, so the movie spends a lot of time focusing on it, and that damn song was culturally omnipresent. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very present in the film too. Um, she's unlikable. He's unlikable. It's, you know, it's kind of a terrible film. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm watching. Sounds sounds great. I think I think uh, I had a more enjoyable weekend of film. I don't know. Guess what? I'd rather watch Whitney Houston do a slinky, sexy dance with a samurai sword than look at what's supposedly Robert Pattinson's sperm. Thank you so much for listening. We are now on iTunes, as some of you may have seen. So if you subscribe to Side Talks on iTunes, and we hope that you do, please remember to give us a rating or a nice review uh, saying how much you appreciate this podcast. And we, we hope that you do. And if you don't, just, just lie. Because uh, your ratings and your reviews on iTunes help the visibility of the show. We want more listeners. So throw them our way. And um, while you're on the internet, check us out on social media. You can find us at Facebook on Twitter, on Instagram, I don't know, possibly some other stuff, usually under the name at Sidewalk Film. We've got a presence out there. So I also want to really quickly thank Boutwell Studios. They make us sound good, which is really freaking hard to do. It's so hard to do. And then we have amazing music from Splash 96, and we so appreciate that as well. Um, And I guess that's pretty much it. This is your own cinematic Simon and Garfunkel. (laughs) That's a good one. Thanks for listening. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.